Hello and welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we have a little talk about it. So the World Cup just happened. Ah, uh, yeah. Lindsay's a big uh, soccer fanatic. I wouldn't call myself a fanatic. Well, I watch once in a while. Yeah. But I get excited about certain things. I don't have a ton of experience in soccer. I played soccer for around four years when I was a kid. I attribute my interest in wanting to play soccer largely to the big green. I don't know if there were a lot of kids who watched The Mighty Duck and wanted to play hockey. I watched this and wanted to play soccer. And this is one that was in your your household growing up. This this clamshell VHS yeah. tape we're looking at. You know what's funny is the thing I remember most about this movie is the cover where Patrick Renna, Larry, the big red-haired goalie, is getting hit in the nuts with a soccer ball. And that's not something that happens in the movie. No, it's not. And it's one of those things that you look at and you're so used to that image. I had thought... I kind of had a false memory that there was a scene where that happened, but it doesn't actually happen. It's just the poster. That's not even really the kind of humor that's in the movie, in my opinion. Like, it never really gets that, like, raunchy, like, a lot of nut shots. No. There is the weird sexual stuff with animals, though. Oh, which we'll be getting into. Before we get too into the big green, you have racked up quite a few more ads on this VHS tape. Only four more. Well, one of them was an extended music video, which we're going to have to talk about. So, this came out in 1995 when Toy Story Fever, you can just sense, was in the air. This had come out, I think, just weeks before. It was also a 95 release. The Big Green had basically come out, I think, a few weeks before Toy Story had. This was September. I think Toy Story was closer to November. It's telling that the very first ad we see is for the Toy Story video game that's coming to Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo. Aw, yeah. These are the kind of time capsule ads that I live for. Like, this is, I think, (laughs) this is what really makes uh, the VHS gimmick of this show worth it, I think, is when we get a really cheesy mid-90s video game ad on a tape. And it's funny because we're doing all this VHS stuff and you think of rental places that have since almost entirely died off like Blockbuster. When I watch this ad, I think about how we rented the Toy Story game for our Super Nintendo from Blockbuster. There were a ton of games that I played as a kid that I kept getting confused as an adult whether or not we owned it or we rented it from Blockbuster. Like, we didn't own a single Kirby game, but I played most of them because we rented them from Blockbuster. I always forget that was a big portion of Blockbuster's business because we never did that. We never rented games. Yeah, we rented games all the time. It was one of the things my brother and I would get really excited about. I mean, you talk, you reminisce about going to to your guys's movie rental place and looking through all for the, all the weird like VHS tapes and all the weird covers for things but for me it was going into the game section and picking out something to play do you remember this ad it's kind of interesting because it's, I remember all these ads yeah because this this it's a live action thing where first you see this kid outside of a toy store and the game sort of comes to life in mm-hmm. a TV through the window. It's kind of yeah. It's kind of nightmarish imagery. The creepiest shot is at the end when you see if you remember the weird spider thing. It's like a what is it? It's like a spider robot with a 
decapitated baby, or I guess I should say severed baby's head on it in Toy Story. They replicated that, but they put the kid's head on it. Yeah. And he's walking around on the little spider robot. It's it's pretty creepy. Um, Our next ad is one that I remember us renting at one point when I was a, a kid. It's a kid in King Arthur's court. It stars the Rookie of the Year kid. I can't think of his name. I don't know uh, what Rookie of the Year is. That's a uh, kid's baseball movie. And it stars this smarmy-ass kid who is in a whole string of Disney movies. But I'm more interested in his co-stars, which include Kate Winslet (laughs) and Daniel Craig. Who would have thought that those people would explode out of that movie? Yeah, and and it's pretty much what the title suggests. A little nod to Mark Twain in the title there. It's just a modern-day 90s kid being uh, sucked back to, you know, medieval times and swinging from chandeliers and getting into all kinds of mischief. Mm -hmm. And it's not coming soon to theaters trailer it's a soon avail- soon to be available on video cassette right? yeah it says wherever videos are sold i remember nothing about this movie but I, th- I would be curious to revisit it especially with daniel craig since i'm such a fan of his i remember my brother and i liked it when we were kids there were so many things we liked as kids <laughs> <laughs> which brings us to the next ad man of the house this is a movie that comes up all the time on our podcast we were just talking to ben bellamy about it on the previous episode i was talking to my brother about it yesterday over text <laughs> it's just such a disappointment i kind of have fond memories of it of us watching it but it was more just us i think ribbing on it a little I bit i think i'm just bitter that it i didn't remember it at all but i just remembered that i loved it and then when we watched it together i hated it i kind of like the first section in the movie where it's just jonathan taylor thomas torturing chevy yeah. chase i think the movie that we can't watch but inevitably will need to is jungle to jungle because I think yeah. that's another movie where I'm going to absolutely hate it as an adult. just hasn't aged well. Our very last ad is... Well, it's not technically an ad. I, I guess it sort of is. There's there's a spinoff of The Lion King. I guess yeah. a direct-to-video spinoff called Timon and Pumbaa's Wild Adventures. I got really excited when this ad came up. And it's a music video in which... Timon, that's the meerkat, right? The yeah. Nathan Lane's character. Yep. Um, he's singing Stand By Me. And they're all the same lyrics, except he he adds Pumbaa's name to it. Yeah. As a kid, I ended up in choir for a very short period of time because I was not a great singer. But one of the songs we did was Stand By Me. And I feel like I was very excited about it because of this music video slash ad it's a very simple gag in which Pumbaa just keeps on getting destroyed while Timon doesn't notice and it keeps escalating Pumbaa gets attacked by a sea monster hit by a tar truck a safe falls on him he blows up he gets struck by lightning it's very violent it's extremely violent (laughs) um it's been a long time since I've seen The Lion King, but I don't remember that being the nature of their relationship and that Pumbaa just keeps getting wrecked while nothing ever happens to Timon. I think it's more about Timon's character being self-involved and Pumbaa's more giving. Mm-hmm. I think they're showing the high contrast and then trying to also get you excited about this spin-off movie that they made. 
Yeah, Pumbaa, this is not a healthy relationship. He's asking you to stand by him, and you are just repeatedly getting savaged by nature. Yeah. All right, well, we'll take us into Big Green. Uh, you mentioned that this starts off with uh, the first of many strange incidents with animals. Yeah, well, I'll hold on that for a second and just describe what this is about. Imagine the Mighty Ducks, but with soccer, and you pretty much have the Big Green... It's a little bit different, but essentially you've got these hard-knock kids who are living uh, living kind of out in the countryside. They don't play any major, like, team sports or anything. They just don't really have anything to do in, what is it, Elma, Texas? And suddenly this English woman shows up to become their teacher, and she can't get through these kids at all, so she ends up deciding to found a soccer team and force all of her students to be in the soccer team. And through this experience, they learn about life, love, and soccer. And they all even improve their test scores, going from like one of the worst in the state to fourth best in the state. <laughs> As an expository billboard tells us in the final shot of the movie. Part of the rash of kids' sports movies that were coming out in the mid-90s that we've discussed before. It's funny that you mentioned the Mighty Ducks, because when you stop to think about it, it really is the same exact formula. Yeah, the only thing is it's the teacher is already a good person, so she's not... She doesn't develop in the course of this movie, it's just the kids. Which I think is crucial. Like, I think that... To me, like, Emilio Estevez as Gordon Bombay in The Mighty Ducks, like, that's what makes that a memorable sports movie, is his character arc from being this really shitty lawyer and kind of uh, reckoning with his past how, you know, competitive sports as a child kind of made him a bad person. Yeah. And kind of learning from that. And, you know, it doesn't have quite as sunny a view you make some good points. And I will say Olivia Diabo, who plays the teacher, she doesn't make a really strong impression. Like, when I would think back about this movie, I never thought about her. I kind of forgot that her character even existed. I remembered Steve Gutenberg was in it, though we've already established my obsession with Steve Gutenberg over, like, It Takes Two and Three Men and a Baby. I think of the adult actors, I Steve Gutenberg probably makes the biggest impression for me. Yeah. Um, Olivia Diabo we've tangled with in real life. Oh, yeah. uh, I guess now is as good a time as any to mention this. Um, past guest Ben Bellamy from the Liar Liar episode, he won an award at the 2015 Studio City International Film Festival. As did you. Yes, but when uh, Ben's co-star, Carly Schroeder, was winning her award, Olivia Diabo was the presenter, and she, I'm sure she's a lovely person, but she could not give out an award to save her life. She was just reading what the certificate said. But she didn't even read all of it, because she, she skipped over the category. We didn't know what category it was for. She literally, she said something to the effect of, this certificate is in honor of Carly Schroeder, presented by, like, she skipped over the, Yeah. there was no context for this whatsoever. So then leave it to Ben, who had already won his award at this point, who's sitting in the audience and just yells out, what's it for? We were all, <laughs> yeah. her. We were all in a bad mood at this award <laughs> ceremony, and it's not entirely Olivia Diabo's fault. 
I, I mean, clearly they hadn't prepped her at all. It yeah. was her first time seeing any of that stuff. I don't. I got the impression she didn't even know she was going to be presenting awards. I think she just thought she was there to talk about her career. Yeah, she was one of a couple actors that were on hand to sort of... I guess they were sort of being honored that night. Yeah. They were... uh, Being recognized Many clips of their films were being shown. Mm -hmm. I feel like this award ceremony was misrepresented to the filmmakers because they said (laughs) it was an open bar. And there was no It bar. was actually a cash bar, as we found out. You, and I felt you, very guilty for having all these people come to a three-hour award ceremony in which hey. the highlight was Olivia Diabo misreading a, uh, an award. And then getting heckled by one of the actors. By a fellow Brit. That's yeah. got to add insult to injury. Yeah. Nothing personal, Olivia Diabo. I thought you were fine in this as uh, Miss Montgomery. But just no Emilio Estevez, in my opinion. Okay. Well, we, we can we can make more comparisons <laughs> in a little bit. We should get to the animals thing, because we've mentioned it a couple times. Yes. So one of, one of the opening sequences in this movie, you see these young boys biking out to a field. It's a foggy Elma, Texas day. And they have... Cheetos, right? They have mm. Cheetos. They lay on the ground and cover themselves with Cheetos and then lay there and wait for pigeons to swarm them and eat the Cheetos off of them, which just seems like some kind of weird sexualized ritual. Yeah, it does seem like a sexual awakening for these characters. And this is the opening scene of the movie, and Miss Montgomery comes in on her car. It's her first day in town. This is how she's greeted. And I guess she's just seen the birds or something because her reaction is to grab like a fire hose. Start screaming. And blasting these birds. She's either a prude when it comes to uh, (laughs) this sort of behavior or she's terrified of birds. She thought that the pigeons were a threat to these boys. The other strange animal thing is there's a goat that plays a huge role. Well, maybe not a huge role, but he's like the (laughs) unofficial mascot of the team. He has prominent placement in the credits and Mm -hmm. on the cover of this video. And there's a bet at the end of the movie where the evil coach, the coach of the Knights, Coach Jay Huffer, basically makes a bet where if he wins the game, he gets to kiss Olivia Diabo. But if he loses, he has to kiss the goat. Yeah. And boy, does it linger on kissing that goat when, spoiler, the good guys win at the end of this movie. Yeah. You mentioned these hard-knock kids. Um, Maybe we should go through them a little bit. The main kid, in my opinion, and I think yours as well, we were talking about this, is Kate. Yeah. Um, It's it's a co-ed soccer team, which uh, the evil knights, kind of the hawks of this movie, if you're still making Mighty Ducks comparisons... The knights are all Aryan boys, and this is sort of a <laughs> melting pot team. Uh, yeah, this is more of a melting pot like Mighty Ducks, although it's not a great melting pot. They yeah. don't make a ton of effort to do much stuff with the kids who aren't white. Like, there are twin black girls who just say things at the same time and wear the same clothes, and that makes them cute and quirky. And then there's... An Asian kid who can burp the alphabet, but then doesn't really have another line in the movie. When I was looking at this uh, this box art before recording, 
I pointed at the Asian kid who could burp the alphabet and asked, was he in the movie? Because <laughs> I forgot entirely yeah, about no, his character. He, he was totally in the movie. They just stopped doing anything with him at a certain point. The only child of color that they actually put any effort into was Juan, who mm-hmm. was, as you said uh, when we were watching the movie, he's the ringer. Yeah, he's the only kid on the team who's like a great natural athlete, Yeah, I would say. And I think Juan is an interesting character because they actually gave a little bit of background to him. Like he, he and his mom are apparently living in the U.S. illegally. She doesn't really want him to participate in soccer. She's kind of worried about him getting noticed and that sort of thing. And then there's actually a scene where the asshole coach of the Knights gets a parent, Kate. Her dad reveals, because he's drunk and has all of his own issues, that Juan isn't a legal citizen necessarily and gives that away to the Knights coach. And then the Knights coach ends up running with it and trying to get them deported, which is a kind of heavy side storyline to have for a kids movie and really interesting for Disney to do. Yeah. And and very timely. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's actually pretty relevant to right now, which I was a little surprised by. Well, it was an angle of the film that I didn't remember, although I mean I don't really remember anything from when I was a kid. There's two kids that are probably best known for the Sandlot. So there's Evan who played squints in the sandlot but i think he was oh no no there's another kid that i'm thinking of because also alfalfa from the 90s little rascals he plays newt who's the little guy who is collecting trash (laughs) i think he just has a little cart that he drags around with lots of stuff in it that seems to be garbage yeah he like stumbled in off like a charlie brown special or something i was thinking of charlie brown when they had him come in and then of course we've got patrick renna who is kind of the centerpiece of the box art and was kind of the in my opinion sort of the breakout star of the sandlot um he plays larry the goalie who memorably is a terrible goalie in part because he has daydreams about the rival teams turning into monsters and attacking him. Mm -hmm. The knights become actual knights. The Vikings become Vikings. Apparently they play teams that are called the Terminators and the Walking Dead. Yeah. Who turn into uh, basically a bunch of Arnold Schwarzeneggers on motorcycles and zombies, respectively. Interesting twist. Yeah strange fantasy element to this children's movie yeah the surreal elements in this i think are actually pulled off pretty well a pretty good collection of child actors even though there is a lot of tokenizing here you know for this era i think at least they put in the effort kind of nah. <laughs> vaguely I, they probably did a better job than mighty ducks yes. i mean Juan is an actual character Juan is a real character and you get to see his family and like home life and stuff which you don't i don't think you really see with any of the non-white kids in the mighty ducks and i bet to some kids this is like the introduction of wait i have a mexican friend could he be deported you yeah. know, I feel like it's sort of like an like, idea... Could I lose my friend? Yeah, the idea yeah. that you could lose your friend and teammate, like, I feel like that is executed pretty well here. Yeah. I mean, it's very simple, but again, this is a movie for children, and I feel mm-hmm. like it, it needs to be accessible. I was just also thinking about Kate's character, because I, I think Kate's character is the other one that has more depth. She has an alcoholic dad who doesn't really do anything... 
doesn't seem to really have a job or be able to hold a job. And then so she's kind of a little bit of the adult at home. Like she's taking care of herself and her dad to an extent. And so she, when they introduce her, she's not really interested in school and doesn't seem to have any confidence and want to do anything with that. And so this film kind of shows her developing that kind of independence and confidence to, you know, connect with people and not be completely brought down by her home life. One of the flaws of this movie is that her dad, after, you know, being a dick and giving Juan and his family away to the bad guy, which shows that he has his own prejudice, right? Like, you're not going to talk that in a bar to somebody unless you have prejudice. But anyway... He does this complete 180 and is suddenly sober and really great happy dad for like a day. And that that's where the film ends. And it's it was interesting to me that the writers made that choice because I think they didn't want to be such a downer, I guess. They wanted it to be hopeful that, you know, because his daughter was succeeding, that that inspired him to fix his life. But, like, there was no in-between stage where you could see him make that gradual change it was just out of nowhere i thought that was a major flaw yeah it was a very jarring turn because he's almost like a secondary villain to the knight's coach yeah and the fact that they have a drink together and are kind of conspiring against the big green is telling um you you mentioned the writers interestingly i mean at least the only credited writer is also the director Holly Goldberg Sloan, who was the first woman to direct a live-action Disney film, which is pretty cool. So, big ups to Holly Sloan. That's a pretty interesting... I mean, who knows if there was uncredited rewrites? I know that the union rules require substantial changes to get a writing credit on a film like this. Mm -hmm. But it does sort of seem like this went through a lot of rewrites and some characters sort of came to the fore. Maybe this is even something that happened in the editing room. I kind of wonder, too, because the thing where the dad just does this complete switch around out of nowhere, I think that must have been a note on the script that they made a change to. Yeah, that that makes sense. It is a really jarring turn. It almost feels like he's a bad guy that needs a comeuppance too, but they had to kind of soft pedal it because at the end of the day, he is Kate's dad. And she doesn't have a mom. Like, yeah. He's the only parent. You mentioned when we were watching this that it felt a little bit like three billboards outside Epping, Missouri. <laughs> because uh, a billboard does play a pretty big, well, not a huge role, but it kind of bookends yeah. the film. That, uh, this idea that there's a this empty billboard that used to represent their their football yeah. team and it's kind of rotted away because they've had nothing to be proud of sports wise since then. Yeah. And you've got Steve Gutenberg, who's kind of the the bumbling deputy. Yeah. Who's very much like Sam Rockwell. I was imagining it also because uh, in three billboards you have this blonde very attractive english woman living in a rural place in the middle of nowhere inexplicably yeah why does she live there and so this is the explanation so this is like your prequel to three billboards explaining how she got there yeah you want to know a way that the big green is a much better movie than three billboards (laughs) in that they explain why that person is there how they've you know, nestled into the community. It doesn't feel like it was just 
the director's friend being placed into the movie. That is one of the most bizarre casting decisions okay. of any movie I've seen. Not that The Big Green is actually better than Three Billboards. No, I didn't say that. I'm saying this is a way in which it's a better movie. It's a small way. Yeah. This tiny Texas town, Elma, Texas, I guess this is all filmed around Austin. The, the Knights are an Austin team, and they actually film in Austin for that bit. It's just funny because it, it does, there are some comparisons. And once you mention that, I, I could not get past it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, at the end of the movie, that billboard suddenly has the big green on it. The big green referring to a large field in Elma because they I, apparently have nothing else to call their team. I mean, they could have called it, you know, I don't know, the goats or something. Yeah, it's kind of one of those team names like the Jazz or the Magic, where it's kind of a, uh, it's not exactly a plural animal or anything like that. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it also drives, more of an idea. Yeah, I think it's also driving home that there's nothing there. Yeah. Like, these kids are now driving the excitement in their lives by participating in a team sport. Speaking of the big green, the kids end up having to do a lot of fixing up to the... <laughs> <laughs> to the field so that they can prepare it to have actual soccer games there. And it's all overgrown. It's kind of crazy. And somehow these kids are doing it by themselves because we need to see all their really funny hijinks. One of many montages, as yeah. to be expected from a movie with like all, this. Yeah, with all the footage sped up. They end up taking like a motorized riding lawnmower out lose control of it it crashes through a fence and then cows come out and then they just graze all the grass down and all the kids think high five we did the best thing ever everything looks great but then there are cow patties everywhere which becomes another gag that's pretty hilarious <laughs> <laughs> i was rolling in the aisles on that one it was fun watching this with you, Lindsay, because uh, I, I never played soccer as a kid. I, I mean, not uh, on a team anyway, maybe at recess sometimes, but you mentioned that uh, they wouldn't even be allowed to play. If their first game, they kind of just show up in a truck wearing kind of whatever, like street wearing clothes. jeans and stuff. They don't have cleats or shin guards, which meant that they, they wouldn't have been allowed on the field. And I kind of remember that from playing rugby, that they, you would line up and they would look at all, like, they'd look at your cleats, they'd yeah. look at, you know, make sure you're not wearing jewelry that mm -hmm. you can cut people with. But, uh... Yeah, they'd always line us up before games and check to make sure that we were wearing actual gear. Yeah. And then, like you said, for jewelry, they even would check our, the, the length, and I, because I was on a girls team, they would check the length of our fingernails and stuff. And they'd have us remove earrings. You could yank on an earring and rip that thing out. It's funny because by that rationale, like, you know, losing this first game is kind of what gives them the impetus, the drive to become better, right? Because don't they lose like zero to 16 or something like that? I think in, this is the other thing. I think in reality, the way that they have these kids behaving, I don't think they would have wanted to play another game. I think they would have lost and then just thought, okay, we're losers, we don't want to play soccer, and then that would have been the end of the movie. <laughs> Can you imagine that version of this movie? <laughs> 
where Olivia Diabo is just desperately trying to get them interested in soccer again, but they're just yeah. kind of like, screw that, we lost. We haven't really talked about Steve Gutenberg's character, and I think he's kind of interesting. He gained more than 12 pounds for this role. I'm sure he had fun doing that. I was saying during the movie, like, I wish I was an actor who had an excuse to gain weight for a role. Like Robert De Niro in Raging Bull or something like that. Just a license to eat all the trash you want <laughs> and never exercise. But I think his character was a little interesting. They didn't do a lot with him. They definitely didn't pay attention too much to the adults in this movie. But they introduced the idea that he's kind of a lazy, sucky sheriff that doesn't really do anything, doesn't have anything to do because it's a small town, but he also just doesn't really care about his job. Mm -hmm. And they even show him trying to go to a bar in the middle of the day and the kids make fun of him. Yeah, it's the same dive bar where Kate's dad spends most of his time. So they're establishing that most of the adults in this town are probably alcoholics. I think it's just everyone's bored. I mean, that's why the kids are having these weird encounters with pigeons and, like, they just have nothing better to do. So the adults yeah. get drunk and the kids cover themselves with Cheetos and let pigeons descend upon them. Yeah. It's pretty bleak when you think of it that way, and it makes you think of the whole Trump's America thing, but... It, it's very bleak. I mean, it's just, if Olivia Diabo hadn't magically flown in like Mary Poppins and introduced this town, really, because the adults get in on it, too. Like, yeah. the kids playing soccer and being competitive at this sport gives them a reason to live. It inspires all the adults, and they become obsessed with it, because there's something for them to take pride in, and... It's interesting because the town, the last time the town seemed to have any excitement or pride was when they had a football team. Mm -hmm. And Steve Gutenberg would reminisce about that. And he kept thinking that uh, Olivia Diabo was not understanding how football worked because she was talking about European football. And he kept trying to correct her, which was really charming. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene in the dive bar where all the adults are looking at soccer magazines. Yeah, that was actually pretty cute. And I guess it also sort of speaks to that thing, especially in the South, where, like, high school sports are a big deal. Yeah. Everyone knows everyone on the high school football team or whatever, but this yeah. is an elementary school, uh, or maybe middle school. How old are these kids, anyway? I think they're at most 12-ish. Yeah. So somewhere in there, but, it, you know, I think it's just funny to me the idea that they've never even heard of soccer before. Yeah. When I lived in Japan for a year, it was funny because people would ask me what sport I played in school and I'd say soccer and they'd react with shock because girls didn't play soccer. Um, they didn't have any association with women playing soccer, which is really interesting. And it, it's kind of funny because in this movie you have, uh, you know, this co-ed team and the Knights being rude about them having girls on their team. So it kind of makes me think of that a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot of sexism for sure on the on the part of the knights. Of course, this all comes down to the big game versus the knights, kind of the rematch. Juan misses, I think, the entire first half. He's kind of MIA after the deportation scare. Yeah, and then luckily the the sheriff Steve Gutenberg is able to track down Juan and his mom and let them know that. I don't know what he's going to do, but essentially he's going to help protect them and get their citizenship so they can stay, is what it is implied. It's not really explicit, but he brings them back to, to have one play, because they're not going to win without one. 
And it comes down to uh, some penalty shots at the end. Very much like a bunch of the World Cup games we watched did. Yeah, it was so funny because we watched this and then watched some of the World Cup games and and Sean was like, it's just like in the big green. Yeah, I mean, there were so many. I don't know if that's typical of World Cup games, but we watched three different games that came down to penalty shootouts. Yeah. And it's so stressful to watch that. Yeah, and it's it's very much like the ending of The Big Green. Yeah. Except it's different in the sense that Larry the goalie apparently had never blocked a goal until this final game. That's yet they somehow made like. it to, like, regionals or whatever this is. Because the entire team is better than him. Yeah, but he finally gets his shit together for this shootout where he learns to make himself part of the nightmare and transform himself into a monster that he can fight other monsters. Yeah, so he ends up becoming a little bit of everything that he had imagined. So he has Terminator sunglasses, one mummy leg, one <laughs> night leg, so a chieftain's hat, which, which is weird. Which I love the mummy leg and the fact that he had this vision of mummies. Like, which kids soccer team did they play that was named the mummies i don't know i guess it could have been one of those teams where i definitely played on like t-ball teams where they let the kids name their yeah. own team it also made me wonder were they implying the other teams that they'd played or were there cut scenes where we saw mummies running around um i know we saw some zombies i know we saw some vikings some knights i don't remember mummies i feel like that might have been cut out or they just did it because it looked funny yeah but i mean i could i could buy a, a kid's team in the 90s being called the terminators because t2 is so popular yeah. at this time even though it was rated R, like, everyone played the pinball game and everyone was aware of it. But I can't imagine a kid's soccer team being called The Walking Dead. No. <laughs> the most intense team name of any of the teams I ever played was No Fear. Whoa. I bet they were a bunch of jerks. <laughs> they actually were. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yeah, they win the game. The uh, little newt took a break from collecting garbage to uh, score the game-winning goal. And that mean Coach Huffer has to kiss the goat. And he didn't do a very good job yeah, of kissing the goat. He really didn't. They had to, in post, they had to add a sort of a kissy sound. Yeah. So do you relate to this movie because you were a soccer player or like as a No, because I played soccer after I saw this movie. Uh, so this was more the, the thing that... Yeah, got you interested in soccer, much like the adults in Elma, Texas. Yes. Wow. To establish a timeline, this came out in '95. I probably and, played soccer about five years later. And how many viewings of the Big Green, approximately, between? Oh, I have no idea. I I feel like this is a movie that I watched a lot for a year or two, and then just never touched again. <laughs> I went through phases with movies. My brother and I would do this where we would watch something just over and over again. Even we would watch something and then watch it again the next day. He was like that with Surf Ninjas. Like, I feel like for a two-month period, he was watching it almost every day. Yeah, I definitely had some movies like that. And as much as you could knock these 90s kids sports movies for being super formulaic, I was reading the Roger Ebert review of The Big Green. This got a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is very unfair. I think older movies just don't have enough reviews collected to really be a fair assessment of the movie. But 
Roger Ebert gave this one and a half stars, and he was basically like, if you've seen The Mighty Ducks, you've seen this. And it's funny, because he gave this a half a star more than Hocus Pocus. Which is a perfect movie. It's not a perfect movie. Hocus Pocus, for what it's trying to be, I think it's a perfect execution. And yet he gave The Happening three stars. I mean, R.I.P. Roger Ebert, but he made a lot of mistakes in his career. (laughs) He loved Joe versus the Volcano. Yeah, he gave it three and a half stars and later had it at Ebert Fest, which is his, like, overlooked film festival. We've probably mentioned Joe versus the Volcano at least four times on the podcast. I think we need to actually do an episode Yeah, I think it's the only uh, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie we haven't covered on this podcast. Yeah. Well, Lindsay, as you know, we have a system on this podcast. Oh, we do? Yes. Do you buy it, rent it? Or tape over it. I'm going to give this a rent it. I think if you like kids sports movies, it's got an interesting amount of attempted depth. Not like <laughs> attempted true, depth. Not like true, real, super interesting depth. But it's like it's almost there. And for a kids sports movie, that's not totally usual. So I think I think it's worth viewing if you're interested in this genre. I feel guilty doing this. I feel like I'm the one kicking the soccer ball into the nuts of Larry the Goalie on the cover of this VHS tape. I'm going to give it a tape over it. I do kind of agree with the assessment that we've seen this story before. We've seen the outsider coach coming in and teaching these hard-knock kids how to play a sport. I enjoyed parts of it. I like, I appreciate some of the nuance in there, especially with Juan's character. I almost wish that was explored more. I think the direction of it was fine. I think these kid actors are fine, but it just wasn't super memorable for me. The fact that I couldn't remember these kids on the cover after just watching this movie, I think is just indicative that it's not a super memorable one. I think I'd prefer The Mighty Ducks or... Uh, a number of other kids sports movies for the big green but it's fine it's not objectionable yeah i mean that's why i qualified my rent it as a if you're really into this genre of films go ahead and watch it it i think it's fun if you like the mighty ducks and that sort of thing but i totally get what you mean it's it's not it's not something that you want to that anybody needs to seek out and really see and and make sure that they've seen it well sean What have you got for us next time? Well, Lindsay, you know, we've been doing a lot of crowd favorites lately. A lot of, I think, popular movies. I don't think The Big Green was that popular. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I think Box Office Mojo claims it's the fourth highest grossing soccer movie of all time. They don't have a lot of competition. (laughs) I think it came behind Kicking and Screaming with Will Ferrell. Bend it like Beckham and... She's the man? She's the man. I think that's it. Well, as long as she's the man is on the list. Yeah, you might be able to switch around the order of those. Now, she's the man. There's a good soccer movie. I'm down with she's the man. And it's a Shakespearean adaptation. There's nothing that movie can't do. So this time, we're veering away from the children section in the VHS rental store. Uh Okay? We're going into the horror section. We are looking at this sun-bleached row of tapes, a horror series where all the covers for some reason have monsters coming out of the toilet. 
what is this series? Where oh. do I start? There's a whole bunch God. of them. Here's where we're going. Not the first, not the second, but the third Ghoulies film. Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College. If you have not seen this movie, you are in for a real treat. Uh, Lindsay, have you seen Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College? No, but you've talked about it so many times, and I've been trying to avoid ever <laughs> seeing it. <laughs> but now I guess I have to well, watch it. you know, we have a podcast in which we force the other person to watch either a kid's sports movie or a horror movie about little gremlins that pop out of toilets and terrorize fraternity brothers. I really thought I was going to avoid ever having to see one of these. Well, your time has come. Next episode, those ghoulies, they're going to college. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes at our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. You can also contact us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. <laughs>